This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There were 704 new cases of COVID-19, a bit less than the kind of numbers we were seeing last week, but there were also 9,000 fewer tests pointing to a higher positivity rate of 2.2%, and the positivity rate is the rate of tests that came out positive. Now, There are also fewer deaths and hospitalizations than we saw in the spring, but the experts say that's no reason to rejoice just yet. In many spots, it is still taking a long time to process those tests, and local public health units are cutting back on contact tracing. And my question is, without timely test results and robust contact tracing, how are we going to get a hold of this? Now, here's an aside. The government, the Ontario government, is promising to hire 500 more contact tracers by mid-November. And uh, I think that could be a great part-time job for many Zoomers. You can do it at home. The pay is 20 bucks an hour. Not too bad. Uh, so we'd like to hear from you, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Dr. Susie Hoda, the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. Network, Dr. Ray Dionandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Dion Alamon, an industrial engineering professor at the U of T and an expert in contact tracing. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, I'm here. Okay, good. Good, good. Uh, let's start with Dr. Hota. And uh, first, let me say that there was a very interesting and very well done, huge takeout in the Globe and Mail this weekend on Dr. Hota and her team at the University Health Network. And I highly recommend reading that for anyone who wants to uh, really get more details on what is actually happening in the hospital. So um, congratulations on that, Dr. Hota. That was really interesting. Thank you. I, I really do think they did a great job um, kind of highlighting some of the work that's happening in that this one part of the healthcare system that, uh, you know, people may not be so aware of. So, And, and there is one thing uh, before we get into the contact tracing that I'd like to ask you about, and that's that so-called hub and spoke system. So you now have responsibility for some long-term care homes. So what exactly are you doing with them and how is that going to help us avoid the horrible situation we had in the spring? Well, it's sort of multi-pronged and it's still very new. Um, so relationships have been set up and I think the idea is to have a relationship with hospitals where, uh, you know, infection prevention and control programs have been in place for quite a long time and learn from those um, models to try and see how we can uh, strengthen overall infection prevention and control in long-term care homes. Right now, we are working very closely with public health on outbreaks that are occurring in long-term care homes um, that we've developed these relationships with. So so many different stages, and I think it will take uh, some time for it to all roll out, but um, but that's, that's what the plan is. And how many long-term care homes are you involved with? 
So my hospital is paired with um, about 15 long-term care homes, about five retirement homes, and then approximately 30 to 35 congregate care settings, which would include group homes and, and a variety of different congregate care settings that are also at higher risk for outbreaks. So you're just giving them advice. You're not going in there or, or anything like that, right? We're also going in. Um, we help to reinforce infection prevention and control practices, answer questions and support the staff, um, troubleshoot when things are you know, particularly challenging. You have to think outside the box. But there are many other players as well. It's not just the hospitals. The idea is to have uh, the homes very much develop the capacity themselves um, to manage some of this on the ground. And, and uh, Ontario Health is involved. Uh, you know, there, there are many players that are trying to work collaboratively to get uh, strength and infection control. Hopefully not too many players. <laughs> uh, that can be a problem too. Dr. Dion Alman, um, contact tracing. So we know that the contact tracing resources that we had were basically overwhelmed and they've pulled back on that. And I'm wondering, well, how do you get control of this because on the one hand I, I I don't know if the time to process tests has improved much but it was way too long it was uh, in many cases four and five days and in the meantime they're not doing contact tracing except for confirmed cases so isn't that a recipe for disaster uh, yeah it, it really can be um, contact tracing is an incredibly effective and targeted approach to control the spread of disease. Um, sure, you might not catch, even with slow results, you might not catch, you know, people that, that one person has infected, but you can catch that, you know, third and fourth generation of infections that, that would result. And on top of that, you can hopefully figure out where these infections are occurring, and then that can allow more targeted economical interventions about like which types of businesses um, need to be um, closed down or have further restrictions put in place, uh, what is and isn't safe for people to continue doing. But without contact tracing, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on unless there's a major outbreak somewhere, which then means that we're in a position where we have to look at sort of major, broad, sweeping um, shutdowns of, of how we conduct our, our normal lives in order to get things under control. And would you say, are we at that point where the contact tracing isn't doing its job? Well, I think the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the public health units have had to pull back on contact tracing and just focus on uh, certain areas of interest like <clears throat> schools and uh, congregate care centers um, indicates that, yeah, we are really not able to to do the contact tracing that's that's necessary. And, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate. Our public health units are being asked to run a marathon um, while with one hand tied behind their back and essentially their legs in a potato sack uh, because of lack of funding stemming back to the year before COVID started. Um, there's just not enough time to school up personnel and, uh, and expertise um, that, that was lost in, in the big budget cuts last year. And now we're, we're really suffering from it. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Ray Dionandon. He's in Ottawa, which is uh, another place that's not doing so well in the second wave. Hi, Ray. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, all things considered. Uh, how uh, is Ottawa doing in in terms of those two elements? Uh, in terms of getting tests processed and contact tracing, we're also not doing that well. In fact, even in Ottawa, there is this shift towards asking the infected to take the the lead on contact tracing, which is not great. I mean, if you think back to HIV, if you had to ask the HIV patients to do the 
the follow-up with people they've been intimate with. It's a it's a awkward conversation for people to have, and so many people aren't following up. So the test trace isolate the TTI regimen is broken across the province. That's a serious serious thing to consider. I'm, I'm fond of of talking about um, Taiwan as a great example of how we can um, use surveillance and, and tracing and testing to get us out of this. And Taiwan has a population of 23 million, 500 total cases only, only seven deaths. And the reason they were able to do that was that they have a very thorough surveillance and tracing system in place. So uh, we can do that, but it takes political will, it takes resources being invested, and it takes the system to work, and also takes citizens to be on board and to actually give their information when contacted by tracers. Yeah, I, I want to get into that. So for for the people who are, are not in the, the congregate settings, uh, and it's not a question of, of a confirmed uh, kind of a case, they have to, they're, they're being left to talk to their own contacts. It's, it does seem kind of awkward, though I would think not quite as awkward as the HIV conversation. But um, uh, Dr. Alleman, is there any good experience with that? Well, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, certainly we don't, we don't often hear about, um, you know, contact tracing, uh, specific success cases or, you know, a success, uh, case of somebody self-contacting their, their own contacts who they've exposed. Uh, so it's really hard to know. But, you know, as was just said, you know, you're asking people who are infected to, to, do something that they're not incentivized to do. Like it's embarrassing to tell people that you have COVID. I mean, sure, it's not uh, as as severe as um, like HIV or maybe something more mild like herpes, right? But uh, you know, they're controlling STDs is is a major um, complicated task because people don't want to volunteer information um, either to public health or to their own contacts. And it's the same thing with COVID. If people aren't incentivized to do it, and that's just that, right? So we, we really can't expect it to be um, a very effective means of controlling um, those, like I said, those second, third, fourth generations of infection stemming from one person. Well, here's the other thing. I I know of a few instances where people, they would have been on the other end of those contacts. It would have been, uh, you know, out of an abundance of caution. You know, I one case where somebody was in a bar and on media heard that there was an outbreak in the bar or a staffer and then told somebody that he had a socially distanced meeting with, uh, and that then that person didn't qualify for a test anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, another, another thing that really complicates matters is the uh, insufficient capacity of our, of our lab testing for COVID that um, the people who are eligible to be tested has been dramatically narrowed to people that are essentially really quite likely to be um, COVID positive, people who have actually had contacts and people, uh, known contacts and people who are displaying symptoms. Um, so because of that, you know, we're, we're not able to, to really do a good job um, understanding how COVID is spreading, especially since so many people might be wholly asymptomatic or have such mild symptoms that they would write it off as, as no big deal. And then they can't get tested. So we don't know how far the disease is spreading. And then that also makes it complicated for people who might be forced to go into work unless they actually have a, you know, notice of positive COVID test in hand, even if they know that they've been exposed, um, they're still forced to go into work. Really? Businesses haven't been forced to close down. 
Uh, and so we're really putting a lot of our people in very compromised health situations. I, I, I'm surprised that that exists. I know, for instance, uh, here where we work, anybody, anybody thinks, you know, they passed it in the street, you've got to stay home. Yeah, and certainly there are there are lots of responsible business owners that are are much more mindful about their um, employees' health and the health of their other employees and well, yeah. you know, the overall population. But I've read tons of scenarios of people just being forced to come in um, because the business is technically open and you're not technically positive, so we expect you to be here or you're going to get docked. Well, hey, it's going to come mean, out of your it's... few sick days or uh, vacation days. It's uh, it, it's it's very odd too because uh, you know if you infect everybody else you're not going to stay open very much longer. Uh, but um, before we take, we are going to have to take another break. But uh, Dr. Dionandan, so the government is hiring another 500. Uh, in your opinion, is that going to be enough to get rid of the the tracing backlog? No, it won't. We have about 2,700 right now in Ontario. 500 more is great. But the, the surge in cases since those 2,700 came online is quite significant. And the contact tracers I've spoken to are thoroughly burnt out. They're doing, the part-time ones are doing 8 to 10 per day, and that's psychologically draining. They take a lot of abuse from people. It's, it's quite an ordeal. And they're being asked to scale it up to 20 per day right now, which is, which is a lot of work. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot of work. Um, and so I think we'll have to double that capacity, really, if we're serious about this. If, you, if we want the TTI, the testing, tracing, and isolation regimen, to be the thing that gets us to normality, this has to be a systemic-wide effort with the population on board, giving their information and not being abusive, and also with businesses on board, with you know allowing infected or exposed people to take time off and, and so forth. So this isn't just a matter of hiring contact tracers. It's a province-wide, society-wide endeavor to keep everything open, which means allowing the tracing and the testing and the isolation and the quarantine, all that stuff to work. And just, again, before we take this break, Dr. Alamon, do you think that hiring people um, who have, you know, presumably some transferable skills, maybe customer service or whatever, uh, and and who follow scripts in this, is is that a, a good way of doing it? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, um, if if there's, you know, people who need jobs, um, you know, like you said, $20 an hour is nothing to sniff at. Um, you know, and, and if you're in customer service, you're probably used to taking a, a bit <laughs> Some of abuse, abuse yeah. <laughs> from the people you're talking to. Uh, not that it should be that way. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, I think we should be pulling resources wherever we can get them. Yeah, and, if, you if, know, but, but as was said, you know, 500 is, is a good start, but it's, it's not a, it's not a lot, um, and definitely we need more. You know, we've seen some more restrictions. They fall short of a lockdown, but are those the two sort of extreme cases, choices that we have, Dr. Hota? Either we have really good contact tracing and testing, or we have severe restrictions. You know, they really shouldn't be mutually exclusive in my mind. You should still be aiming to do as much containment by, you know, using contact tracing to actually uh, tease out where cases are are coming from and where they're likely to head based on exposures, as well as, um, you know, judiciously using restrictions like closures where needed when you're overwhelmed um, in terms of contact tracing or when the case counts are rising in spite of that attempt. So I think the two can happen together. And, and I think has been, has, has been nicely articulated earlier. Um, it's really our key to try and get things going and to get a handle on COVID-19. 
Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I would like to see contact tracing continue through this, even though the case counts are going up. Um, but, of course, we're, we're facing all kinds of logistical challenges with that happening. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Dr. Alamon, how, what's the turnaround, you know, the testing turnaround that will help, would help make it effective? Well, the faster you can get a test back, the more effective things will be, uh, just because you can more quickly go and target that, you know, that person's contacts and get them in isolation before they have a chance to infect anybody else or hopefully not too many other people. Um, I've seen reports um, of people getting their tests back within 12 hours and others three, four days, right? So there's, there's a real disparity in the time it's taking to get tests back. So uh, that says to me that you know, our, our labs are, are overrun because our case counts are just so high. I think everybody was just uh, operating on a hope and a prayer that um, the second wave wouldn't be as bad as the first wave. And so not enough capacity was built into our system where it was needed, both in terms of contact tracing and lab testing. And that just makes contact tracing that much more difficult because that's you know that much more spread that one person can can affect before they find out that they're positive, before they change their behaviors, before public health units, if that person is actually being contact traced, can come in and find the people that have been con- contacted and those contacts, um, et cetera. So, you know, it is kind of like this snowball effect that the longer it takes to get a test back, the more accumulation of disease um, can happen in the community. Dr. Dionandon, are you satisfied with uh, the way lab testing was ramped up? I know it's also not a simple thing. Am I satisfied? I think it's the best that we could do given our resources, but had we had better planning and investment early on in the season, I think we could have done much better. And of course, the rapid tests, which really aren't panning out to be as good as we'd hoped, could have helped. And they can certainly help in what we call reassurance testing. That's these people mm-hmm. who need a negative test to get back to work. But that answer your early question about, you know, can tracing be sufficient in absence of restrictions? I think they probably can be. There's a, a couple of models that show that if we can get test result back within a day, then really good tracing can help us keep this under control. But when the testing delay takes more than three days, no amount of tracing can help, though. So that's when we need to apply um, economic restrictions. So that's where we are right now, where our testing is delayed and our contract tracing cannot keep up. Therefore, we have to have lockdowns of various aspects of society. Mm. It's possible to get it fixed. Now, there's something I want to take up with Dr. Hota. Um, So we know, and it's been admitted, that the last time big part of the problem was that a lot of patients were shifted to long-term care, that the entire focus of the government was making sure that the hospitals were not overloaded and they would be able to handle that. And what we ended up with was this terrible, horrible situation in long-term care, and the hospitals were, in fact, able to cope. But now we're hearing that there are more cases in the hospitals. There are uh, people who are waiting to get into a nursing home that are in the alternate level of care in hospitals. So aren't they just reversing the problem? It's a very complex problem. I mean, one of the things that came out of the learnings from the first wave was crowding people into long-term care homes with, you know, sometimes four residents in a room was not a good thing for infection control reasons. Um, and, you know, certainly we that would facilitate spread. Um, so the capacity within long-term care homes was reduced. But then, as you said, there's, you know, a, a trickle up, I guess, a trickle up effect, you know, into the um, rest of the healthcare system in terms of not being able to place people into homes where they would be best suited to be 
Um, and so, you know, that has capacity issues that then translate into, into hospitals and acute care. Um, so, you know, we're really trying to grapple with all of these things while being prepared for a potential surge in uh, new admissions coming in from the community based on, you know, what we're experiencing with the second wave. Uh, so far, again, we've been able to cope and it's been more of a linear rise in terms of the number of hospitalizations in Ontario, at least. Um, but, you know, that could change any time if we lose control of our ability to contain things out in the community. Are you worried that the hospitals might see what happened in long-term care last time because of that? I mean, certainly hospital outbreaks can happen, too. We know that. We see them. They're happening already. Um, but, you know, the situation is different. The setting is different in long-term care compared to hospitals. And I, and I think that we have a little bit more experience with managing, um, you know, patients with COVID-19 and, uh, and outbreaks that I don't think it's going to look the same as, as long-term care. Um, but certainly, like I said, we are susceptible in hospitals, too, and that has an effect on everybody. And uh, Dr. D. Onandan, in terms of the capacity in hospitals, so uh, are you worried about the fact that, that the hospitals are picking up the slack from long-term care and you have long-term care, bad long-term care outbreaks in Ottawa? Of course, we're always concerned about anything that compromises hospital capacity. And, you know, it's different now than it was back in March because we are absorbing the long-term care capacity and because everything's open, because the backlog of surgeries that were delayed are being processed. So the ability to absorb new COVID cases is strongly diminished right now. That's something I don't think the population fully understands. And the fact that uh, there are way fewer deaths, uh, you know, should people take comfort from that? Or or is, is that just a question of a time lag that we haven't been in the second wave long enough for, for the deaths to have happened? Um, I'll take a shot of that. I mean, I always take pleasure in no deaths. Yeah. Know, something to celebrate. Um, it's probably a time lag issue, but it might be a case of we're testing more milder cases and getting less serious cases. But the probability of hospitalization remains strong. And so the probability of an overwhelmed ho- um, hospital system is high. So I don't like focusing on the death. That doesn't tell the full story. The, the story here is hospitalization use. That's what we have to focus on. Okay. Uh, we are just about out of time. So I'm going to give everybody uh, 20 seconds. Uh, Dr. Hota, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, you know, I think we're at a critical point, and one thing we didn't talk about is the complexity of the contact tracing, not just the number of cases we're seeing um, in the communities, but also their number of contacts have gone up a lot. And to me, the real message here is we all need to limit our overall number of contacts right now, because that's going to be a critical way for us to get this under control. Okay, good point. Dr. Dion Alamont. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to jump on board with that statement as well. If businesses and other forms of contacts um, are still being uh, allowed, if people are allowed to uh, to maintain their larger social bubbles than we had during the first wave, uh, that doesn't mean that it's safe. Um, you know, and I and you know, I hope that people understand that you know, the province is always going to be slow to enact restrictions, especially rolling back restrictions that are that are already open. So we have to take it upon ourselves to to do the most responsible thing possible. And on the subject of of deaths um, and the fact that the death rate isn't um, going up. Like, yes, that's always good news, but at the same time, uh, there could be very long-lasting health implications of having COVID, even if you don't die. So I think that instead of focusing on the deaths, people should be looking at infections um, because those can 
have serious health consequences for, for all of us and for our health system 15, 20 years down the line. Okay, I'm sorry, but I am over time, so I'm going to have to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray Dionandon, Dr. Dion Alamon, and Dr. Susie Hota. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.